Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome to the Tom Hartman Program. I'm not Tom Hartman, as you might have noticed. My name is Rebecca Vallis. I host a show called Off Kilter. It is the only nationally distributed radio show and podcast that focuses exclusively on poverty and inequality and everything that they intersect with week after week. You can find us on Twitter at Off Kilter Show, and you can find me at Rebecca Vallis on Twitter as well. We've got a great show lined up for you today, the latest from the Kobach Commission on supposed election integrity. Lots there to talk about, especially a, a, a set of fireworks that happened just this week. The GOP's latest Hail Mary pass to repeal, repeal the Affordable Care Act. Lots there to discuss, as well as Bernie Sanders' proposal to expand Medicaid, uh, excuse me, Medicare for all, DACA, and the president's uh, promises to roll back that program, impacting 800,000 Americans, uh, new Americans who are undocumented, and the fallout from Hurricanes Harvey and Irma. Um, but first, I'm pleased to be joined to discuss uh, some news out of the U.S. Census Bureau this week. This week, the U.S. Census Bureau released its annual snapshot of poverty, of health insurance, and of incomes in the United States. And following 2015's historic gains, 2016 was another banner year on all three fronts. Poverty is now finally back to pre-recession levels. Median income is up. And the share of Americans without health coverage has continued to decline, reaching a new record low of 8.8 percent. All of this out earlier this week from the U.S. Census Bureau. So clearly a good news report. But all this good news obviously comes amid a political climate where it could quickly be erased. Joining me on the phone right now to discuss what this means and what's at stake for Americans struggling to make ends meet in this country is Jared Bernstein. He is a fellow at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. He's also the former chief economist uh, for President, for, excuse me, Vice President Joe Biden. You can follow him on Twitter at EconJared, and you can read his blog at www.jaredbernsteinblog, where he makes wonkery lots of fun. Jared, thanks so much for joining the show. Do I have Jared? Hi, Jared, do I have you there? 
waiting to get Jared on the line um, here this morning. So Jared's going to be discussing what the poverty data mean and what is actually at stake given the administration's budget um, and what it means for low-income Americans. So trying to get Jared on the line. Thanks for staying yeah, with us. Thank you having me. There we go. Jared, we can hear your <laughs> lovely, wonderful voice. Jared, thanks so much for joining me this morning. So as I was saying at the top, clearly a good news report out of census. Lots of good news on the poverty rate now reaching actually pre-recession levels for the first time that we've seen that. Incomes up. Health insurance uh, coverage now at record highs. Um, so 2016 was another good years, good news year all around on the heels of 2015. What's driving this progress? Well, the tightening labor market, of course, plays an important role. The unemployment rate uh, last year, 2016, was a little bit below 5%. We were creating, oh, about 180,000 jobs per month. That's a good clip. And in fact, one of the things that we saw pretty clearly in the data is that more people went to work and went into the labor market, and many people shifted from more part-time to full-time work, and that would increase their annual income, boosting both uh, middle-class incomes and lowering poverty. This is an important theme that you and I have discussed, and I know it's one that looms large for you. Uh, and this is the idea that you know, if people have access to gainful, remunerative employment opportunities, I'm talking about low-income people, they will take advantage of them. And so uh, too often the poverty debate, especially from the conservative side, focuses exclusively on people themselves as if, uh, as if, if they, they don't have a job because they don't want a job. Uh, more often than not, especially if we're talking about able-bodied working-age people, uh, they very much want and need employment, uh, but uh, it's the demand side of the equation, the availability of of good jobs that's left out. So that, that improved a bit in, in 2016. So what role do we think that state and local minimum wage increases that we've seen over the past couple of years, which we know drove a lot of the progress in the 2015 historic gains on, on poverty and on, on income that we saw census report last year, what do we think that state and local minimum wage increases had to do with the gains that we've continued to see into 2016? Well, these data only came out earlier this week, and we're still parsing uh, some of uh, those kinds of questions. But we have seen consistently that states which raise their minimum wage above the federal level, the federal level stuck at 725, uh, of course, and has been there for <clears throat> many years now, uh, th those states tend to show um, greater wage increases for low-wage workers. That's, that's kind of intuitive. Uh, and uh, since they don't really have much of a negative impact on employment availability, uh, they tend to boost people's income as well. So you've got people working uh, more employment, more hours typically at higher wages. And so uh, I suspect that when we crunch the numbers, we'll find that poverty reductions uh, have been significant in places that raise their minimum wages. Now, obviously, when it comes to health insurance, it's hard to have a conversation about progress when it comes to uh, health insurance rates now reaching uh, record highs without mentioning the Affordable Care Act, which Republicans are, are not quite done trying to repeal. We'll be talking about that later in the show with Andy Slavitt. Um, but I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about what you view as kind of the flip side of the story from census. We've got all of this good news, um, but it isn't because of decisions that we're seeing under 
under the Trump administration or from even really uh, the Republicans in Congress, it, it's all good news left over from the Obama years, isn't it? Oh, no question. Remember, these data are for 2016. So we were blissfully unaware of a Trump presidency back then uh, for most of those months. And so, uh, yeah, the Affordable Care Act, I mean, its fingerprints are unquestionably on one particular variable that we look at every year in this report, and that is the share of Americans who are uninsured. That share was about 15% before the ACA went into effect. Uh, as of this report last year, it was uh, below 9%, 8.8%. That's uh, the lowest level on record. So you can say what you want about the ACA, and I, I, I myself have some criticism, some ways we could get under the hood and improve the performance of the Affordable Care Act. But one thing everybody has to acknowledge, um, if they're dealing in, in facts, which of course not everybody is, is that it has been instrumental in lowering the share of Americans without coverage to uh, the lowest level on record. So one of the things that uh, I personally have been expecting to happen, given that it's not wouldn't be the first time we'd seen it from this this president, um, is for Donald Trump, despite what you just said about the fact that all of these gains, all of this good news is actually due to policy decisions that predate his being sworn in as president. I'm still kind of expecting him to try to take credit for this good news report. I haven't seen him do it yet. I don't know if you've seen that happen. Um, but in fact, what I believe that these data end up actually showing us, and, and I, I'll say, let's not get the, the balloons out just yet or pop any corks, um, because what I view these data as telling us is actually not just that we know what works when it comes to uh, uh, cutting poverty, boosting incomes, making sure people have health insurance, but actually that all of those gains are incredibly precarious because of the political climate that we're in and the decisions that if Trump gets his way and if Republicans in Congress get their way with, for example, their budgets, uh, we're actually going to see a lot of these gains erased. Some analysis just came out of uh, the Center for American Progress, where I work in my, my day job, as it were, um, finding that if uh, three, just three of the cuts that Donald Trump proposed in his budget released earlier this year had become law, cuts to nutrition assistance, cuts to energy assistance, and, and actually the rollback of Medicaid expansion and what that would mean for rising out-of-pocket health insurance costs, 2.3 million more Americans would have been poor in 2015, uh, the latest year for which data are available. So really a, a stark fine point to put on what at stake here. Um, what are you uh, viewing as what the American people need to be seeing when they think about what's at stake here and how it plays in with the ongoing budget fight that I'd like to talk to you more about throughout this hour? Well, I stipulate everything you just said. And in fact, my main theme when I was writing up the results uh, from, from these data that we've been discussing was there's some momentum uh, in the underlying economy. And uh, there are a set of ideas out there that could really push back the wrong way against this momentum. So uh, there are kind of uh, a couple of dynamics worth uh, getting into here. One I mentioned in my answer to your first question, you asked sort of what are the economic underpinnings of these good results, and I talked about the solid labor market. But I think, and, and I, I've noted in your comments today that you're, you're conscious of this as well, <clears throat> I think it's actually possible to overinterpret how positive these results are. They're definitely uh, moving things in the right direction. But I like to take things in a longer historical context. And if you actually look, uh, and you, you yourself made this point, you, the poverty rate is back to where it was in 2007. Okay, well, in 2007, these are 
2016 data, so that would be nine, nine years before, uh, well, the economy's grown a lot over those nine years. And you might ask, well, why, why are poverty rates just back to where they were? Why aren't they lower? Let's, let's not uh, be a, a victim of diminished expectations here. Yes, median household income grew sharply over the last two years. I was very glad to see that. It took it back to about the same level it was in 2007, and that's about the same level it was in the year 2000. So, you, you know, you're talking about a decade and a half where people in the middle class have been kind of struggling to get ahead. So let's not conflate a couple of good years with some sort of reversal of a set of structural underlying problems in the U.S. economy that continues to channel growth, even in these data, by the way, pretty aggressively to the top of the income scale. And uh, uh, regarding your, your policy points, um, you know, the last thing you'd want to do is to kind of screw up the momentum we have right now with policies that reverse some of the very factors that are helping to generate these outcomes. So you mentioned cutting Medicaid. So cutting, cutting the heck out of Medicaid, um, repealing the Affordable Care Act. I mean, my last comment, I told you about the, uh, not the, uh, uh, the progress we've made against uh, uninsurance with the ACA. And we know for a fact, that, uh, as per uh, the CBO scores on this, that the Republican plans would have absolutely made that worse. So I'm going to stop you right there because plenty of time to discuss throughout this hour what these data mean and, and what we're actually watching when it comes to the budget and tax fight. More with Jared Bernstein from the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities on the Tom Hartman program after the break. Welcome back to the Tom Hartman program. I'm not Tom Hartman. I'm Rebecca Vallis. I'm usually the host of Off Kilter, a radio show about poverty and inequality. And you can find it at Off Kilter Show on Twitter. But that's exactly what we're talking about this hour on the Tom Hartman program. Before the break, I was speaking with Jared Bernstein. He's at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, formerly the chief economist to Vice President Joe Biden. Jared, thanks so much for sticking around with us. And we were just talking before the break about the new census data finding that poverty is now back to pre-recession levels, uh, a welcome piece of good news. Incomes are also up. Health insurance also at record highs. And we were also talking about how much of that is actually at stake, given the policies that President Trump and his friends in Congress are looking to ram through. This is a particularly timely conversation, given that Trump and Republicans in Congress are now seeking to pivot to what they're calling, quote, tax reform. And I'm putting that in big scare quotes there because what they're really talking about is giving massive tax cuts to billionaires so they can buy a second yacht. Would love to hear you talk a little bit about what you see as the road ahead in that fight. I'm pretty careful not to call it tax reform, because that sounds like something good and useful. And in fact, it's an old Washington trick. You say, I want to reform Social Security. Uh, that means I want to cut it. Uh, in fact, uh, in this case, reform, uh, again, means cuts. Tax cuts, if you look at the the plans they've outlined so far, and this is actually an interesting wrinkle because there really is no tax plan yet. All we have are a number of ideas that have been put forth, but we can score those ideas, things like eliminating the estate tax, uh, estate tax which is a, uh, a tax that falls only on the top 0.2% of the richest states, getting rid of the alternative minimum tax, uh, uh, a tax that uh, makes sure that people with uh, wealthy people with the tons of eliminations and deductions have to pay something, cutting the corporate tax rate by more than half, uh, giving some goodies to multinational corporations. If you coat these all up, 
as you suggested, uh, uh, the, the vast majority of these benefits flow to uh, those at the top of the scale. Uh, if you look at the share of the tax uh, cuts going to the top 20%, it's about 70%. If you look at the share going to the middle class, it's a couple of percent. Uh, and by the way, this ties into something we were talking about before. What you really should do, uh, since these tax cuts are all going to, not all, but are largely going to go on to the deficit, um, at some point Congress is going to say, we have to cut spending to pay for the tax cuts. You know they're not going to say we need to raise taxes, so they're just going to say we have to cut spending to pay for the tax cuts. Well, who's that going to hurt? Uh, middle class and poor people again, because those are the programs, the, the spending cuts will undermine the programs they depend on. So it's really a double whammy for economically vulnerable uh, families. So obviously a lot of this gets very technical. I, I want to actually unpack a lot of this in English, and I'm glad I have you for the full hour this hour because I'd like to get into some of those details. Um, but I think what I hear you saying is that there's something of a shell game going on here. Either Republicans are going to try to ram through tax cuts for the absolute richest people in this country and possibly also corporations on the backs of low-income people directly through cuts to those programs to pay for those tax cuts, or they're going to engage in some kind of a shell game where they're doing the tax cuts now, running up the deficit and coming back to us later to say, oops, we can't afford all of these programs. It looks like now we need to cut them. Am I getting that right, Jared Bernstein? Yeah, it's, it's that latter part that I think is really the play here. I think that the Republican playbook is not at all that simple and doesn't require a Ph.D. in economics to unpack at all. What? In fact, it, it may be that if you have a Ph.D. in economics, it's harder to see it than it should be. And you've got the Ph.D., so we'll be back with Jared Bernstein right after another short break. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925. Right after this short break, more uh, with Jared Bernstein on the budget and tax fight gearing up in Congress and your calls. It's time you look forward to sitting at your desk all day. Since getting my new X chair, not only am I enjoying the time spent at my desk much more than ever, but I can't believe how much more productive I'm being. My X chair is unbelievably stylish. And thanks to all the ways you can personalize it, it literally molds itself to my body. Trust me, this is not your grandfather's office chair. And because I don't need to keep having to take breaks or to stretch my back, Getting more done in a day than ever before. You spend a lot of time in your office chair every day, then you need to try the X chair. In fact, here's a ter terrific deal just for my listeners. The makers of X chair want you to feel the X chair difference for yourself. So if you go to xchairtom.com, that's the letter X, chair, C-H-A-I-R, Tom, T-H-O-M, dot com, not only will they knock $100 off the price, they'll even throw in a free footrest if you use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M. Just go to xchairtom.com right now. I love my X-Chair, and you will too. So check out xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com. And be sure to give them T-H-O-M as the uh, promo code to get that free footrest. What a great deal. Welcome back to the Tom Hartman Program. I'm Rebecca Vallis, sitting in for Tom today, and I've been speaking with Jared Bernstein. He's a fellow at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, and he was helping to explain what's going on with the 
budget and tax fight gearing up in Congress. Republicans like to call it tax reform. And Jared, you were explaining why you never like to call it tax reform, because that's not what it is at all. It's actually about millionaire and billionaire tax giveaways, possibly also massive tax giveaways to corporations. But what I'd love to do is to actually have you help us understand what lies ahead in the weeks and months ahead of us as Republicans try to, as you were describing before the break, sort of use something of a shell game to either directly pay for these tax cuts on the backs of low and moderate income Americans through massive cuts to nutrition assistance and Social Security and everything else, or potentially to try to kick the can down the road, pay for it with massively jacking up the deficit and then come back, as you were explaining, and say, oops, we can't afford all of this spending. Now we need to cut Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and more. Um, How are we going to watch them do that in the weeks and months ahead? Well, right now they're doing kind of a couple of things simultaneously. One is they're going through some of the budget machinations they need in order to pass their tax cuts um, without uh, a filibuster. So this is an arcane process rule that would enable Democrats in the Senate to block uh, the tax cut. Uh, there's a process called reconciliation that enables them to get around that. So they're kind of writing these process rules that will enable them to do that. I suspect they'll be able to complete that in a few weeks. At the same time, they're putting together a tax plan which Somewhat remarkably, for all the talk you've heard about it, they really don't have a plan. So Trump goes and gives a speech about the great tax plan. There is no tax plan. As I mentioned, there are a bunch of component parts, and many of them look pretty terrible to me in ways I've discussed. But they have to put their tax plan together. And while they're doing that, I think one of the things that listeners really need to be made aware of, uh, if they're not already, (laughs) is that they're really trying to sell this as uh, an upside-down version of what it is. They're kind of looking in the looking glass here and uh, um, trying to sell the opposite of what they're actually uh, putting together. That They're selling this as something that will really help working people. And in fact, just uh, this morning, Trump was on television saying that uh, well, if we cut the corporate tax rate by more than half, from 35 to 15 percent, uh, that's going to create a bunch of jobs for middle-class people. Well, this is the old supply-side trickle-down fairy dust, and it really never works. Uh, what you end up with is more after-tax inequality and less government revenues uh, in much the ways we've been discussing. Well, and actually, we've got a caller who's right on that topic, so I'm going to try and bring in uh, Chad here from Lakewood, Washington. Chad, you are on the air with uh, with me and Jared Bernstein. Chad, go ahead. Thank you very much, Rebecca. Um, I, I just It blows my mind when people blame the poor when the poor are so disenfranchised. If you earn say $50,000 in a given year, uh, $7 of that perhaps is going to SNAP welfare, uh, but $4,000 of that is going to uh, corporate subsidies. Your reaction, Jared? Yeah, uh, the caller is is tuning in something that is not only really important, but really underappreciated. Um, there's, uh, conservatives have been very successful at uh, focusing on the parts of government that uh, redistribute uh, income to low-income people. But, of course, there's massive upwards redistribution. Much of it occurs through the tax code, and we've actually talked about some of it. So if you're a foreign corporation, uh, you don't have to pay taxes on your earnings abroad. You can just uh, keep them, uh, and that, that keep is in quotes, you can just keep them overseas uh, and not pay any any U.S. taxes on them at all. Now, the reason that keep is in quotes is because there's all kinds of games you can play to book them abroad while you have access to them here. 
Uh, that's just one example, but there are many more uh, ways in which we uh, uh, upwardly redistribute uh, income, just as the caller suggested. Well, and, and Jared, I, I feel like it would, we would be remiss in this conversation if we didn't also uh, bust the myth that somehow massively slashing taxes for the wealthiest in this country also is, is something that creates jobs. That's something we've heard from Republicans for generations. It's the old uh, trickle-down economics canard. But we need to look no farther than Kansas for Exhibit A on why that's a myth. Uh, what, what happened in Kansas and why should we learn from that, Jared? Well, it's an interesting uh, comparison because some of the same actual people, the same folks who uh, helped craft the Trump tax plan, wrote the tax plan for Kansas and sold it to Governor Brown back out there. And it, it was precisely the kind of uh, trickle-down uh, uh, fairy dust that I was I was trying to disabuse a few minutes ago. The idea was uh, significant cuts in tax rates. They opened up a a big loophole. They said if you have a uh, if you have a pass through business, uh, you don't have to pay any taxes on that at all. It's a particularly type of it's a particular type of small business. Well, guess what? A hundred thousand people decided that all of a sudden they had pass through businesses because that's what you do when you can get a big tax break like that. At any rate, after a few years. Uh, none of the economic growth effects that were supposed to happen right away, none of them appeared at all. And in fact, if anything, Kansas did worse than surrounding states. And of course, they were hemorrhaging revenue. Their bond rating had been downgraded twice. And the Republican legislature, you know, they're, they're not liberals out there. The Republican legislature canceled most of the tax cuts, closed that big loophole because they were starting to cut services that actually mean something to people out there, like their educational services. They have a good education system there. And they're proud of it, and they were starting to undermine it with these uh, foolish tax cuts. But as you describe, that's exactly how we're going to hear President Trump and his colleagues in Congress try to sell this package, really, as as you said, the reverse of what it is, as though it's supposed to help working families when what it's really actually is a, a big uh, box wrapped up in a bow uh, of everything that corporations and the wealthy want for Christmas or Hanukkah. Um, I'm going to bring in another caller who actually wants to talk about Keynesian economics. That's what happens here on the Tom Hartman program. You get lovely nerds. Uh, and we've got Justin, you're live with Jared Bernstein. Hi, Jared. How are you doing today? Now, I've I've looked in the past, and I've taken a look at the GDP, and GDP goes from six to twelve, uh, six to four under Keynesian, and that sort of stuff. We've had spikes that go up to eleven and twelve, which brings our GDP much closer, and that sort of stuff makes much more jobs, bring be able to bring manufacturing back, and that sort of stuff. So I'm I'm wondering why why Keynesian has been tossed aside. Jared, your thoughts. <clears throat> Uh, I think it's very much an ideological uh, reason. That is, um, I was working for the Obama administration the last time we did a very significant Keynesian stimulus package to push back against the Great Recession, and uh, it was actually uh, fast-acting and, and, and pretty effective. And nothing's perfect, but it certainly helped pull forward uh, a recovery that began in the second half of 2009. So this was actually uh, score one for, for Keynesian uh, economic policy, but, you know, that involves a government sector uh, spending uh, resources, uh, typically adding to the deficit, at least temporarily. And if you are, if, if it's a part of your core ideology that uh, anything government does doesn't work and makes things worse, well, then, of course, you're going to assail Keynesian economics, which has a prominent role for temporary government spending to offset the kinds of demand contractions that happen in an economy like ours. And so it's really a discrediting effort, not based on facts, 
but based on this, this theme that we've been talking about throughout our discussion, shrink government, give the proceeds to the rich. Uh, that, that's very much part of this. Which your think tank, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, Jared, has, has termed Robin Hood in reverse, which is very much what we're watching uh, with this, uh, this fight around the budget and uh, what they're calling tax reform. Um, Justin from Sellersville, Pennsylvania, thanks so much for joining the Tom Hartman program. I'm going to bring in next Adam um, from New Orleans, Louisiana. He wants to talk about unemployment um, and also Medicare for All. Adam, you're live with Jared Bernstein on the Tom Hartman program. Hi. Um Thank you for taking my call. And the question is actually a, more of a global economy kind of question. So how much unemployment uh, and what kind of impact on mostly European economies will actually occur if Medicare for All actually moves forward? You know, when I think of transfer pricing associated with the pharmaceutical industry and how much cash is being literally sucked out of the United States into European economies, uh, mm. and uh, the number of people that are actually employed uh, in medical-related industries, uh, this can't be done um, overnight. Uh, yeah. I mean, it really has to be a very measured uh, practice. And uh, just uh, historically and anecdotally, my uncle uh, held the patents on GPS location technology that would have enabled uh, automation of black box, te black box technology, elimination of air traffic controllers. The government said no. Too many people will be unemployed. So yeah. what is, how does this play out? A lot wrapped up in there, but thank you, Adam, for that. Jared, do you have any thoughts in response? Yeah, well, first of all, let me refer folks to a piece that I put up this morning on the Washington Post, uh, in the Post Everything section. Uh, it's, it's about um, uh, Bernie's plan for uh, a Medicare for All plan, and I, I, I recommend that to you to get my views on this. Um, I take the caller's point, and he raised a lot of things. Let me just focus on one. Um, we're not getting to universal coverage uh, quickly, uh, if at all, but quickly. And the reason is, as the caller mentioned, there are many stakeholders between here and there. But if you actually look at the plan that Sanders put forth, it has um, a nice bit of modularity, and I'll say what I mean by that, built into it. That is, it can be broken down and viewed as creating a path, and perhaps, as the caller suggested, a long-term transitional path to something more universal. And the way to start is to allow certain groups to buy into Medicare. It could be Medicaid, but I think Medicare is probably better in that regard, to buy into Medicare. So you might have kids uh, as part of that group, and you might take the eligibility ages from 65 down to 60 or 55, changes like that. And you, you make that an available option in, uh, say, the uh, exchanges as part of the Affordable Care Act. Um, that plants a seed that, if properly maintained, um, could, uh, I think, in a transitional sense, move us in, in, in that direction in a way that would be far less disruptive. But I do think uh, one has to be mindful of past dependency, kind of where we are uh, and uh, where we're going to try to get. Thanks so much for your call, Adam. I'm going to go to one more call, um, and it's Robert. He's calling in from Mission Viejo in California. Uh, Robert, you are on with Jared. Oh, I think I've lost Robert there. Um, so we'll go instead to Charles um, from Opelika, Florida. Charles, you're on with Jared Bernstein. Hey, how you doing, Mr. Bernstein? Good. Okay, great. My question is this. Because I live in the South as well, I live in Miami, Florida, but um, I don't see any industry that, that employs people on the wholesale. In fact, you know, we live in a right-to-work state. 
And is this border wall sort of like a confederacy um, employment program? Because it's only going to red states, and these red states are bleeding the blue states, you know. An interesting question. So if I'm understanding what you're asking, Charles, you're sort of asking is is the is Trump's idea for a border wall something of what he's viewing as an economic southern strategy? Jared, I don't know if you have any thoughts there. No, I don't think it's any kind of an economic strategy. I think it's much more um, a xenophobia or anti-immigration strategy trying to signal to his base that he wants to keep people out uh, who uh, he's created as a kind of a, a bad guy in this scenario. I do think the absence of industry in places like you're talking about, and I hope you're safe given uh, the floods down there, uh, I, I do think the absence of industry is um, really important. And in fact, one of the things that I think would help would be to think about a jobs guarantee program. That is, if the private sector isn't creating enough gainful employment for all comers, and it's interesting, we started this conversation saying that low-income people want to work. Able-bodied, low-income people want to work. Uh, they can't possibly get by on what we offer them in poverty programs, uh, but they often face insufficient labor demand, that it's not enough good job opportunities. So if the private sector doesn't deliver them, then the public sector should. And I think that would be a very useful solution to explore to help solve this problem. Thank you so much for your call, Charles. And we'll now go to Mike. Uh, he is calling from Niagara Falls, New York. Mike, you are on with Jared Bernstein. Um, Mike, you're live. Your question, question, please. Yes, I had a question about student loans um, and how Mr. Bernstein feels about the possibility of restoring bankruptcy protections to the student loan system. Um, there's a, currently a bill in the House awaiting more co-sponsorship, H.R. 2366, which would do exactly that. Um, and, you know, you hear a lot about, you know, you don't really hear a lot from this administration yet on student debt. And, yeah. um if That's anything, they really uh, again, and by, you know, taking away some of Obama's uh, initiatives to help students. And um, uh, I'm from a group called StudentLoanJustice.org, and uh, we we really feel like bankruptcy protections would start to fix the system that has become essentially predatory. And you yeah. note you note that this administration hasn't done much. I would argue they've actually started to at least make proposals that are incredibly damaging, including uh, taking away um, and making deep cuts to certain programs uh, in Trump's budget. At least that's what he'd like to do if it becomes law um, that help people afford higher education. Yeah, but Jared, you were about much, to jump in. I'm very much with the caller on this point and uh, support uh, what he's talking about there because and we basically we tell people that uh, if you want to be a player in today's global economy, you better go to college. And then we make it incredibly hard for anyone who's not, you know, in the top 5 or 10% to do so. Um, so uh, this, the, that, that kind of a mixed message is not just bad policy and bad politics, it's bad economics. I mean, we really want human capital. So let's not make it harder for people to invest in themselves. Let's make it easier. It's virtually impossible to charge off a student loan, even if you're, even if you're unable to pay it. And I very much uh, support and even have some of my own fingerprints involved on, on the uh, Obama's um, income-based repayment type uh, ideas, uh, which scale uh, your uh, loan service into uh, your incomes and adjust it accordingly. I think that 
makes a lot of sense. Mike, thank you for what your organization does. Really appreciate it and obviously share uh, the, the sentiment that, that Jared just shared himself. Uh, we'll be back with more of your calls after this short break. Don't go away. This is a a fascinating piece in The Guardian. What if nature like corporations had the rights of a person? And I just, you know, without going through the whole argument, the the Te-Yurawara Act is a law that was passed in New Zealand back in 2014, two years ago, and it extended to a 821-square-mile forest the legal rights of personhood. The forest is sacred to the Tuho people, an indigenous group of the Mori, and for them, Te Tura was an ancient and ancestral homeland that breathes life into their culture. The forest is also to them a living ancestor. And this act concludes that Te Yurawera has an identity in and of itself and thus must be its own identity with all the rights, powers, duties, and liabilities of a legal person. Te Yurawera holds title to itself. Now, this is uh, unique to New Zealand. This is brand new. But there are a number of places around the world where where Native people, Aboriginal people, Indigenous people believe. And and I would say that the Dakota Access Pipeline is an example of this. Believe that the land is sacred and is their mother. You know, we came out of the earth. Look at your body. Every single cell in your body is, you know, made made in part out of dirt. We are a product of the earth. You know, uh, what was it? Was it John Don? Tell me not in mournful numbers. Life is but an empty dream and the soul is dead that slumbers and things are not what they seem. Life is earnest. Life is real. And the soul is not and the grave is not its goal. Life, dust thou art to dust returnest was not spoken of the soul. If I'm remembering my poetry, right? And, you know, dust thou art to dust returnest. There you go. Which I think is a paraphrasing something from Proverbs, but in any case, the idea that here in the United States, what we have done, and this is like the absolute pinnacle of Cartesian thinking, right? Of, of the world is a dead machine thinking that Rene Descartes brought us back in the, in the 1700s or the 17th century, excuse me. Um, the pinnacle of that kind of thinking is that something that is not alive, that's an, a human made abstraction, a corporation has the rights of personhood. And they do. The Supreme Court has said this over and over and over again. Corporations are people. Mitt Romney, corporations are people, my friend. But nature is not. Nature, which is alive, does not have the right of personhood. Cannot sue or be sued. Doesn't have, you know, any legal rights other than this one 800 square mile forest in New Zealand which is, like I said, brand new and expect more to come. So how different would our world be? How different would our country be? If before an oil company could go in and, and, and you know, rip up the land and inject poisonous water underground to, to uh, frack out things, if they had to recognize the personhood of that land, 
the sacredness of that land. How different would it be if the lumber companies, before they clear cut a forest, had to consider all the living things in that forest? And the forest itself is a living organism. How different would it be if nature could have an attorney ad litem the same way that the kids in foster care do? Uh, or for that matter, just an attorney the same way corporations who are people do, or who are persons, not people. I think this is a, a great and important idea. So I wanted to share it with you. You are listening or watching the Tom Hartman program. I'm Rebecca Vallis sitting in for Tom. And I've got a couple of minutes left with Jared Bernstein of the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. Jared, in the last couple of minutes that I have with you, we've been talking a lot about a lot of topics to do with the economy this morning. Um, or afternoon at this point. Um, but uh, but I want to take it back just to sort of a, a closing message about what we've learned from the census data out this week about poverty, the poverty rate now returning to pre-recession levels finally after many years, incomes going up, health insurance now reaching a, a record high rate. Um, and I'd love to hear some closing thoughts from you about what we should take at, in terms of what that means for, uh, for the role of policy and actually trying yeah. to cut poverty and boost economic uh, situations for families in this country. It's actually, it's actually a very simple message that these data are telling us. It's the combination of a tight job market, fundamentally solid uh, job growth rate, and progressive public policy. You put those two together... And you're going to generate gains for the middle class and gains for the poor, and you're going to reduce the number of people who are uninsured. You can't stop there because even that combination isn't going to reach everybody. So you have to make sure you're falling people who are left behind, even in a decent economy, strong labor market with some progressive policy. But that's the message. The combination of a tight labor market and progressive anti-poverty policy can get a lot done. And unfortunately, not what we're seeing from President Trump or from his colleagues in Congress who are threatening through their budgets and through what they want to do with what they're calling tax reform, but which is really tax cuts for millionaires and billionaires and possibly also corporations um, at the, the, um, on the backs of low-income people in this country. So really erasing the gains that we've seen is on their agenda. And I know I'll be working with you to try to stop that from happening. Jared Bernstein from the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, thank you so much for joining the Tom Hartman program today. More after the break. Don't go away. Hey, Tom Hartman here with the Tom Hartman Program. You know I'm serious about my health, and so I'm doing something for it. You've heard me talking about Super Beets. I'm drinking Super Beets, a circulation superfood powder that helps support my heart and healthy blood pressure, too. I have amazing energy, amazing stamina as well. The New York Times calls beets fitness in a glass. With Super Beets, I get all the benefits without the bad taste or added sugar. Mix it in water or a smoothie for a jitter-free boost. You'll love the taste of Super Beets and feel results in as little as 20 minutes guaranteed or your money back. Try the original berry or black cherry. That's my preference is the black cherry. If you haven't tried it yet, now is the time. Only for the summer, you can try Super Beats for only $5.95. Here's how. Call now and get a free box of Super Beats with 10 packets to try and feel the results. Plus two free indicator strips for monitoring your nitric oxide levels before and after taking Super Beats. It's just $5.95. You'll love the results. Guaranteed. More energy, more stamina, support healthy circulation. What are you waiting for? Call 800-568-9889. That's 800-568-9889. Or go to TomsBeats.com. That's TomsBeats.com. 
Welcome back to the Tom Hartman Program. I'm not Tom Hartman. I'm Rebecca Vallis, usually the host of the Off-Kilter Show, uh, which is the only national uh, show about poverty and inequality week to week. You can find us on Twitter at Off-Kilter Show. But today, here I am. Um, and for our last conversation of today's show, I'm so pleased to be talking about an important topic that's been in the news, and it's sort of turned into a he said, she said. That topic is DACA. Um, and earlier this month, of course, Donald Trump announced his intention to roll back the DACA program, uh, which is key for uh, immigrants who are actually brought here as children, but who are not citizens. It protects them from deportation. We'll get into that and how it works. Um, but last night, kind of a, a new development in this situation, D Donald Trump reportedly had dinner with uh, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and struck some kind of a deal. We're hearing from Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi that there's a, there actually is a deal in place um, that would protect these so-called dreamers um, from the rollback of DACA and deportation. Donald Trump has a somewhat different side of the story. We're all trying to make sense of what this means. So I am so thrilled to be joined by Christian Ramos. He's the communications director of Define American. Christian, thanks so much for joining the show. I'm glad to be here. I mean, it is a really exciting time uh, in our nation's capital. No, I mean, honestly, if you look back a week ago, two weeks ago, things were looking pretty grim. And I, I want to take a step back from the, the he said, she said, and the political stuff, because I really want to take a moment to humanize this. I really appreciate you doing that. At the that. end of the day, this is not about politics. This isn't just about legislation. This is about people. This is about Americans. And it's important that we continue to recognize that whether or not you have DACA, whether or not you're undocumented, you will be affected by this program going away. So help us understand, for folks who may not be familiar with the nuts and bolts, what is DACA? It's an acronym that gets thrown around, but it, it, it's critical for uh, close to a million people's legal status. Well, so beyond the technical aspects of it, which I, you know, we'll, we'll clearly define as, you know, people who were brought to this country when they were young, uh, who have been in this country for their whole life, who have, in many cases, never been in their, their you know, or remember their country of origin. And they're Americans. And it's important for everybody to sort of realize these are your local firemen, right? These are local police officers. These are, in fact paramedics who are working in Houston, saving people's lives. Some of these folks have given their life out there. And it's not about the best and the brightest of, of the undocumented, you know, folks. It's about everyday people. And I really want to underline that because it's also important that people realize you may be losing your teacher in the future if this isn't addressed, right? You may be losing your child's teacher. You may be losing the person who took care of your ailing grandmother, right? You may be losing some folks that are near and dear to you. The person that you get coffee from every day, you don't necessarily know who does or does not have DACA. So for us uh, at Define American, we're really focused on the stories and the people and what's going on in their lives, because that's critically important to this particular fight. Because when your organization was actually created, just to, to jump sure. in and give him some credit, um, Jose Antonio Vargas, who is the creator of, of Define American, he himself is an undocumented American who sort of came out publicly and said, you may Absolutely. know me as a writer, you may, you may know me as a documentary a filmmaker, but guess what? I'm undocumented and, and I'm just like all these other people who are actually at risk under this agenda. Absolutely. And again, 
I think the most heartening part of this whole thing, I, I can't say what's in President Trump's heart, but the fact that they're having these conversations, that they're going back and forth in Congress, and they're, they're looking at a way to do this, I think is important. And, and at the end of the day, you know, we don't know what, what all this is going to look like. But there's forward momentum. People are having conversations. And, and I think that's an important piece of this conversation, right? Because if you're looking at where we were a week ago, two weeks ago, it was not looking so great. So Also some positive comments from Paul Ryan saying that he actually doesn't want to see DACA rolled back without some kind of replacement in place. Now, who knows whether we should take that more seriously than the repeal and replace talking point that Republicans have been using on health care for so long. <laughs> but still, at least positive noises being being made there. But back to the latest, which everyone's talking about today, and that's this dinner date that Trump seems to have had with, with Pelosi and Schumer last night. We've got Pelosi and Schumer saying they struck a deal to hold on rolling back DACA um, through executive action and wait to replace it with some kind of compromise legislation. Um, and they're saying that the deal that they struck with Trump would not actually be tied to building his beloved huge border <laughs> wall that we hear so much about. Meanwhile, Trump is saying that that's not quite how he understands it. Do we even know where things stand? No. Uh, no is the, the easy way of saying it. And I think from what I understand, there's a broad-based agreement on the areas in which they're going to negotiate the terms of legislation, and then they are going to find a way to draft some legislation and put something forward and see where it is. There's going to be an element on border security in there. And then there's also going to be uh, some, some broad protections for uh, DACA recipients in there as well. Where we end up <laughs> between those two polls is anyone's guess. But I would say that, you know, again, positive forward momentum and uh, we'll see. <laughs> well, I appreciate your optimism for sure. You came in much sunnier than I might have expected for someone who works every day on immigration, given what's at stake. But I have to say, I mentioned Paul Ryan and some of the positive noises he's made and, and who knows what to make of that. But at the same time, we're seeing other Republicans in Congress uh, basically saying that they view this by Trump, if indeed there is some kind of loose deal in place, as a capitulation to Democrats. And they don't want to see him giving in in that way. Um, do we see and uh, do you believe that we're actually seeing the divisive immigration debate uh, bubble back up in Congress? And, and if so, where do you think things go from here? Well, so this is actually an interesting point you're making, because from the perspective of Define American and the work that we've done, even in the last you know six months before the election, there was a lot of bipartisan talk on immigration. There was a lot of comedy on immigration. And I would argue among the more sane members of the uh, conservative movement, there's actually a lot of agreement on where they could go with this type of legislation. And so, you know what? At the end of the day, I'm optimistic because there are good people within the conservative movement. And just as there are good people within the progressive movement, and I think together, you know, there's a lot of at stake. But, you know, uh, this is history we're talking about. This is how we are going to define our country for the future. And I think people understand that. And, you know, I'm optimistic that folks are going to be able to look <laughs> their colleagues in the eyes 
roll up their sleeves and, and find a way forward here. Well, your your optimism is um, it's it's wonderful. <laughs> it's infectious. I'm feeling better than, than than I did before you walked in. But it's also I, I just have to say it's it's sort of hard to take um, very seriously the thought that Trump uh, partnered with certain congressional Republicans, but particularly Trump is going to do such a significant about face after essentially running an election that was all about calling Mexicans rapists and murderers and trying to to play divide and conquer at a level we haven't seen in a generation. Well, you know, I would take this out of the context of even Trump. And I would say, again, there are rational members of Congress who are conservative, who exist within that caucus, who eight months ago were for this type of legislation. And, you know, if you want to take folks at their word, a lot of what they said in the past was that this should always have been Congress that did this work and it shouldn't have been executive action, they now have that opportunity to legislate. And again, being an optimist, because we have to be right now, because so much is not great out there, I think and I hope that they rise to the challenge because the ball is firmly in their court. They control everything, and they can decide if they want to be on the right side of history or just kick uh, the can down the road. So what is at stake if DACA ends up actually being rolled back? You mentioned at the top that, yes, there are real human consequences. A lot of folks have talked about how families may be split up. Young people will lose the opportunity to become um, the productive members of this society that they so um, much, very much want to be. But there are broader impacts as well. Well, so I think this is an interesting thing because you hear this a lot in the press and it's always about they're going to be. And I think it's an important thing to like take a step back and just sort of say, they already are. And this is the thing, again, where I feel like folks really are not aware to the degree with which they're already integrated within our society, society, that these folks are American, that they are out there in the military doing uh, these jobs within our local community that are so important to my everyday life, to your everyday life. And I think when we have that conversation on that scale... Folks are left with no choice but to be supportive of fixing something like this because they, again, they don't want to lose the person who takes care of their grandma. They don't want to lose the the EMT who is rushing to save uh, somebody in their family who's been hurt or, or any of those things. So I think when we have that conversation on that level and you talk to people about that, they're there. They are already there. And so that to me is... a uh, a critical part of this conversation, because as much as there's the legislative piece, I think if we're having that conversation in, in the media and we're telling those stories, I think we're always going to be on safe ground because the American people really like this legislation. They really like what it says about our country. It makes them feel good. This legislation being comprehensive immigration reform. Yes. I mean, and DACA. And DACA and all of these things. And, and taking taking people who want to be American giving them the opportunity to do so and making our country better, right? I think that's what makes and defines our country as, as, as a great one. So we have a caller who's actually been waiting and he, um, his name is Dave. He's in Seattle, Washington, um, and he's interested in talking about the wall that Trump so deeply wants to build. Dave, you are on with Christian Ramos from Define American. Hi, um, thanks so much for taking my call. Listen, when as long as we're dreaming, you know, about uh, <laughs> about DACA reform, 
Um, what if progressives uh, propose something wild? Instead of a wall that's 15 feet high, how about a riparian protection wild and scenic river zone that's a mile wide for the Rio Grande, the Colorado River, and the Tijuana River on the Mexican border? And I'm really serious about this. I mean, the Rio Grande um, <clears throat> wildlife uh, area is an enormous source of biodiversity for the United States. Huge numbers of bird uh, species are only found in South Texas. And it's a wonderful place that I, I happen to really, really like. And why not protect it um, for a mile on, on either side? Because Trump, cannot, you cannot build a wall on the Rio Grande, or you'll destroy the riparian zone. It's not, it's not possible. Um, and it's not geologically possible because I mean, of the canyons and stuff. But a mile-wide border is possible. And maybe it'd be good for everybody. Well, thank you for your call, Dave, and for your thoughts. Christian, I don't know if you have any response there. It's a, it's a new idea for me, certainly. I haven't heard anyone voice that, so I don't, I don't know what your thoughts are. So Define American is a media and culture organization, so we don't really touch the policy side of things. But as somebody who grew up in the Southwest in Arizona, you could probably find some folks down there who would be amenable to something like that, I'm sure. Well, thank you for your thoughts, Dave. Um, certainly something creative and new and not something that I'd heard before or that I think Christian has heard <laughs> no. before either. Um, but, but Christian, before we go to a break, I, I, I actually do want to get a little bit into what Define American does, um, because it, it, for folks who aren't familiar with the organization, it, it's really a, a very um, interesting and, and novel and important mission that you guys are seeking to achieve. And it really gets down to what the name of the organization is, Define American. How do we define the concept of who is an American? Absolutely. And I think it's so unique in the time that we are in, given that so much of the current conversation around immigration is occurring, not just in media, right? Not just in the news, but in your entertainment media. Because Donald Trump is a celebrity, it's this stuff is, or was a celebrity and now our president. So much of this conversation is now occurring in popular culture. And, you know, when Define American was founded by Jose Antonio Vargas, he wanted to be very clear that the lens and the prism which which we viewed all of these things was, again, how are we defining American, but then also media and culture shifting. And it's important because this conversation is occurring in the living rooms of millions of households across the country because they're inundated with all of this stuff. So how do we get into that conversation? How are we making sure that we have positive representation of, of immigrants that is accurate and real to the broad spectrum of folks that are out there? How are we speaking to sort of the intersectionality of this issue? Because I would argue DACA is not an immigration issue. It's an American issue. It's something that everybody is going to have to contend with one way or the other should this program go away. And language is a big piece of that. That's a lot of what you guys uh, are actually tackling is is sort of how we talk, how we how we represent people, what kinds of images are out there in the media. But even the very term um, illegal immigrant, there's so many different terms out there, but um, even the terminology that people use can really impact how people envision and, and what kinds of thoughts go into their heads about the people we're talking about. Absolutely. And it's such a small, simple rhetorical shift, but it has such a huge impact. And, you know, define American has always been at the forefront of dealing with that. We got the AP to change how they use the term in the past. And, and now we're sort of in this space where not only is, is that it, term being used more, but you have white supremacists and, you know, literal neo-Nazis 
on television out there doing their thing. Briefly and, in the White House. Briefly in the White House. <laughs> Who can say? I don't know. But it's uh, it's wild. And I, I would argue that the work that Define American does is, is now more important than it has ever been, given the place that we are in right now. And I definitely want to talk about that more after the break, because a big part of what you guys do really has to do with how people who are immigrants are portrayed in television, in movies, a lot of which is what influences people's thinking and um, and the images they have in their heads about who immigrants are and whether they're Americans. Uh, don't go away. More with Christian Ramos from Define American on DACA and more after the break. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program or watching it if you're watching it. I'm Rebecca Vallis sitting in for Tom. Don't go away. A little more on DACA after the break. This has been the Tom Hartman program. I'm Rebecca Vallis. I've been sitting in for Tom today, and I wish I had more time to speak with Christian Ramos from Define American about DACA and where things are, but I really want you to, to let people know where they can find out more about Define American, um, given the amazing work you guys are doing on the media and cultural front. Yeah, so the best place, the one-stop shopping, is defineamerican.com. But I want to take a second and plug our defineamerican.com forward slash story section, because that's where our platform becomes really interesting. If you are supporting uh, DACA, or if you are a DACA recipient who wants to share your story broadly with the public, we have a story bank, uh, which is very simple to use. On that platform, you literally just... Press a couple buttons, and then you can record yourself talking about DACA and what it means to you, whether or not you're somebody who uses the program or just somebody who's sympathetic. And it's so important right now that we lift up those stories, that we're able to humanize this, because, again, this is about people, not politics, not just legislation. And it's so important that we be telling those stories. It's not going to be pie charts or facts or figures or tables that are going to potentially win this fight. It's going to be those stories and, and really showing the human consequences um, and what it means for all of us if these people are told that they are no longer allowed to be Americans. Um, thank you so much to everyone who's joined today. It's been a lot of fun sitting in for Tom Hartman today. Um, but again, my name is Rebecca Vallis. And if you'd like to get a little bit more of what I do on poverty and inequality and everything that they intersect with, uh, my show is Off Kilter. It's every week. Uh, you can find us at Off Kilter Show on Twitter. You can also find us on Medium, medium.com backslash, backslash Off Kilter Show. Um, but lots of the stuff like we've talked about today and more every week on Off Kilter Show. Thanks, Tom, for letting me sit in and hope everyone has a great rest of your Wednesday. been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.